All of the women that I was sort of tracking in that book are all kind of sidelined out. Betty was just fired from her, you know, she got um, one of the first morning talk show, national talk shows ever. She was the next big thing and then they just didn't know what to do with her and ended up firing her after a year. Imagine firing Betty White. Hi, this is Lauren Milberger. And this is Jesse Mullins. And welcome to another interview episode. Y'all, we are so excited. Oh, so (laughs) excited about this interview. A little peek into how the sausage was made. We originally (laughs) were going to have this interview earlier. Oh, um, yes, months ago. The strike happened. So we have been anxiously, like we were already excited to have this interview because we've been waiting to talk to this particular human, but then we had to wait even longer. So if you hear the excitement in our voices in this interview, that is why. (laughs) So without continuing to be. And so instead of leading you all along ambiguously, our guest today is Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Uh, Jennifer is a pop culture journalist and has written several books on pop culture, but she's previously worked for Entertainment Weekly. And her book that we're going to be mostly focusing on is When Women Invented Television, which is this amazing book about four women at the beginning of television, including Betty White, including women that you may not have heard of that we are so excited to introduce Mm -hmm. you to at a time when it was just beginning. And it was such a fascinating read that we were so excited to talk to her about this. Now, what's also amazing is that Jennifer has very similar interests as we do, as she has Mm -hmm. written on a lot of other 90s television shows. She has written about Sex and the City. She has written about Seinfeld. And, And then also in a way that many people have suggested is parallel to Murphy Brown is she's written a wonderful book on Mary Tyler Moore. So I just want to clarify in this episode, I mentioned a book called Red Channels. For those who are not familiar, Red Channels was the book that we were referencing that came out with all the names of people who supposedly were communists during the blacklist. As you may predict, we could have talked to her for hours longer than we did. We hope to be able to chat with her again soon because we have so many other things we want to talk about. But I think the thing that you will hear in her voice that we got to witness over video was that every time she got a chance to talk about one of these four women that she features in her book. Her face lit up like they were her best friends and beloved members of her family. It's it's really just so infectious to see the love that she had for these women as she researched them and the lasting impact that they had on this art form we know as, we know as television. Yeah, absolutely. And then we we're also lucky enough because of the delay in our interview that Jennifer has a new book that's out right now called So Fetch, The Making of Mean Girls and Why We're Still So Obsessed with It. The stars aligned. It was a very fun conversation about everything and beyond. So we really hope you enjoy it. Yes, enjoy. Will the mystery guest please sign in? I am Jennifer Cation Armstrong, and I am the author of several books about television history with a large emphasis, I would say, on women and comedy. Yes, which is one of the main reasons we were really excited about having you on today. We got very excited when we heard the title of When Women Invented Television. Uh, we got... I'm so glad because it that book, I love that book. <laughs> Good! We love to do origins here. What would you say started your love of television? It's really hard to say. I actually, that's a good question, but I don't totally know the answer because it just goes back so far. Um, Like the story I always tell is just that I remember being a little kid and we would get like TV guide, like the print 
oh, kind yeah. in the mail. Um, and I was so into it. I would get it every week and like immediately read it, you know, read the articles. And then I would like circle the things I was going to watch that week. Like it was that, you know, and I was pretty young. Then. Like I must, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. Um, so it's very hard to know. I guess we were just a TV family. Mm-hmm. And so that must have been a huge part. I had, I do have memories of watching things like Rhoda or, mm-hmm. you know, Newhart with my parents with, you know, like as a family. Yes, I had a very specific highlight and star pattern for nice. articles versus what I wanted to see on mm-hmm. the actual guide itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's I and like from the beginning, I was reading the articles and um, eventually it occurred to me like someone wrote them and that that could be me. But it, you know, that was not when I was five, but probably by the time I was eight. So <laughs> I was going to say, when did you first con- conceptualize television as a thing people made? Do you have a memory a, of that moment? Not totally. I wish I was like, oh, this one episode of this one show or whatever. But I do remember pretty early also um, noticing like the credits, you mm-hmm. know, and starting to notice who made things. Uh, the One of the earlier ones that I remember and like had a feeling about was Marcy Carcy. You remember Marcy Carcy? Sure, yes. yes. Um, who I have, who I actually met last year. But um, I'm so excited, like, because I was like, they're so, f- it's a special group of people who would like be excited that I was in a mm-hmm. room with Marcy Carsey. Yes, that's um, awesome. You two are two of them. <laughs> so I, I mean, obviously her name rhymes. And so that's part of it that just like as a kid, you're just like, oh, that's funny. But I remember really quickly, um, you know, first being like, oh, her name rhymes, but then being like, oh, she's a girl, like, right? Like that that's a woman. And that really struck me. You know, and that was exciting to me because I was so aware that so many of, you know, that's in the 80s sitcom Mm -hmm. world where, like, it's just by default going to be a bunch of dudes. So that was very exciting to me that she was a woman. And that kind of was around the time I started to notice, you know, her and other any other women who might be in the credits Mm -hmm. of shows that I liked. No, that sounds very familiar to our experience, I think. And that's one of the connections that I know I personally, and I think Jesse would agree, uh, to Murphy Brown is to see a woman's Mm -hmm. name in the credits, to see, oh, who's Diane English? Oh, she created this. Oh, she's writing this. Oh, she's show running this. Um, Yes. And understanding what a show is. Oh, she's in advertisements. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. The 80s and 90s is also when we have kind of the nameplate, well, the word showrunner, right? Like, obviously, showrunner is more of a 90s term. But I mean, sure, we have Norman Lear. I feel like there are very few, like, I want to say Aaron Sorkin, but that's obviously later. That's the 2000s. But to have someone who is recognizable, because I would say that Marcy Kersey is amazing, but I don't know what she looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's true. But it also, I think, depends mm-hmm. on the showrunner. I would also say that I didn't know what Amy Sherman Palladino looked like until the DVDs came out. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say that there were particular shows that you look back on in your childhood that cemented your love of television? Um, I mean, the Mary Tyler Moore show and Rhoda. Like, I actually, you know, I I think I figured out that, like, I, could, I couldn't have been watching the Mary Tyler Moore show from the beginning sure. live because I wasn't alive yet. Um, so I didn't know at the time, though, right? So, like, I, could, <laughs> I was, you know, watching Rhoda. I remember we were into, like, you know, we would do Carlton the Doorman and all of that <laughs> in my house. And, like, I kind of remember watching that with my parents, and I just absolutely, like, 
loved Rhoda, the person and the show. Like I was so, so enamored of her. I would wear like headscarves and flowy dresses. I have a picture of myself where I know that I believe I am dressed as Rhoda. I mean, you would (laughs) never, if you saw it, you would not know what I was doing. But like I'm wearing my mom's nightgown and and a headscarf and I'm little, like I'm a little tiny, like I'm maybe two or three and very proud of myself in that photo. And so I'd say like that. And then I, I think that kind of retroactively got me into Mary Tyler Moore show mm-hmm. reruns. Those are probably the earliest and like a little, yeah, I even remember like Newhart. Um, clearly we were, I mean, and also All in the Family and all of that. But weirdly, I got into All in the Family more as reruns later. I have a very specific memory of being more like 12 or 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because it was so political that so overtly political that it like caught my attention that time. Like obviously I knew I we'd watched it before and I knew about it, but like I started re-watching it in some kind of syndicated reruns and I was like, oh, now I understand what this show is. And I also remember very specifically that we always said in my household that um Archie and Edith were so much like my grandparents. Um <laughs> so both of those things like really got me into that. And then that's when I was like, oh, this is more of like me starting to become like a student of television where I was in, then I was like, who's Norman Lear? What's going on here? What's, ha-? you know, like, oh, I, now I understand that Maude and the Jeffersons are part of mm-hmm. this too. And mm-hmm. he's, it's all the same person, you know, like, and then getting into that, all of that nerdy stuff of like wanting to understand who was making it and what was special about it and what was distinctive about his, you know, Norman Lear's style and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. I think also from a, a childhood standpoint, we talk a lot about as being young women watching Murphy Brown and how we would want to dress like these characters and so on. I think, you know, in defense of Rhoda, half of the Rhoda cosplay is just personality. So oh, yes. as long as the essence was there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I I do, you know, in retrospect, I have, I see that there's a lot to be seen in, like, I also have a very distinct memory of playing, I would play Mary and Rhoda when I was very little. Oh, and this it. is, here's here's how that works, is Mary is where I go get my dad's briefcase and I open <laughs> it up and I get the like office supplies out. And Rhoda is where I wear the headscarf and yes. the flowy dress. And I think that's so significant because that's taking the place of like playing house. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm, I'm five and I'm seeing something, you know, it's like, obviously I don't really understand. I'm not like, oh, this is interesting because it's the first, you know, independent single woman on television. And that's why I'm right. I'm five. I can't figure out all of that. I just saw those women and was like, those women are so cool. I want to be like that. Right. That's what I was seeing. And I think I was also seeing like, oh, they're different from the other women on television. Mm-hmm. They're not moms. Like, yes, I know I can play house too. And I did. I totally did. And I played Barbie and all of that stuff. But like the fact that I made up my own thing to play Mary and Rhoda at a very young age is and that that is Mary is goes to an office and works and Rhoda is kind of like cool hippie chick like that's seems significant to me. I think something I found particularly interesting in When Women Invented Television was looking at Almost in this time, and this also, I think, coincides with third wave feminism, something we've talked about a lot with Murphy, but was almost watching the creation of a new archetype within television, within female representation in television. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be intrigued as you talk about, you know, seeing the office, the woman of the office, the, the hippie woman, what types of archetypes you have seen existing in the representation of women in television from your childhood to now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, and obviously that was why I was responding so much to Mary and Rhoda in that moment is just knowing, like instinctively knowing they were different, right? Because before that, it really is pretty much wives and mothers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really, it's like, and even within that you get, oh, you get bewitched or you get, you know, it's like you get little differences. I remember really loving bewitched too when I was oh, a kid. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. the reruns. I watched that in reruns. Um, yeah, I loved and it. kind of yeah. also understanding it was a little bit, di- it's like, obviously it's not as different as yeah. something like the Mary Tyler Moore show, but it's like, I got that she at least had magic. Um, but yeah, really before that, it's like, you really did not, even like my women of when women invented television who are really inventing television in the late forties and early fifties, it's like, you know, their wives and mothers, like that's, that's who they are on television. Like that, it didn't even, I don't think it occurred to anyone, which is funny because, you know, Betty, for instance, was sort of like famously and defiantly single at that time. Yeah. And it, it, like I never saw any evidence that it occurred to anyone that yeah. maybe that like she would have a sitcom where she played a single woman. Like part of it is, of course, that her sitcom came out of her doing some sketches on her the morning show that she co-hosted and that that it came from a sketch where they were playing husband and wife. But like it just did not occur to anyone anywhere that like eh, maybe this should be about Betty's rock and single life. No, this is like she was just a very cute wife. They didn't have kids on that show, so that was a little different. But like, mm-hmm. you know, I think that was more of a budget thing, to be honest. Um, yeah, there's yeah. just like it was mostly a two-hander with some guest stars yeah. occasionally. And you know, Gertrude Berg, who kind of created, starred in, and wrote the first successful family show on television, she is like the quintessential Jewish mother on that show, and that is why she she was successful. I think it would have just blown everyone's minds. Like you could never have had a single woman as a main character at that time. It just doesn't, it would not compute on any level. Cause you, no. what are you doing being single still? You're 23. You spinster yeah. you. Yeah. You spinster. Like that would freak everyone out so much. I mean, just like <laughs> Betty, we saw evidence that in interviews when Betty would do them and she was 30, you know, she was like more like 28, 29 and people were completely freaked out by the fact that she did not have a husband. So, and if you did, you like, if you, if you were single like her, you lived at home with your parents. So like, you know, there was just not, there was no Mary Tyler Moore figure anywhere to be found. And so that is, you know, it's like, once you know all of that, it's like, you understand more why the Mary Tyler Moore show was such a big deal, for instance, but even like Murphy Brown going into, you know, it's like, even in the eighties and nineties, it was still a pretty big deal to have these kinds of women. Designing women also comes to mind oh, yeah. uh, when I think about these kinds of things. And, you know, having other kinds of women besides the, ha- you know, the mother of a household mm-hmm. was still a pretty big deal until like not that long ago. <laughs> well, it's amazing the amount of time from what your book establishes mm-hmm. to actual change. Like it, it was not, it didn't just happen in a couple decades. It took a That's- lifetime. Yeah, and, yeah, and I th- it's really long. I think a lot of what your book reminded me of is sort of the early days of silent film, where you had so many women who were pioneering and directing and producing, and no one had a problem with it. And then all yep. of a sudden, either because it became so popular or uh, men realized that they could do it, they sort of disappeared, and it became an, an oddity. Yeah, I mean, the joke I make over and over again is if you see women doing something, it's because men have either not gotten there yet or they've already been there. 
Um, right. You get, you get, you get like things like the first female anchor after men are like, yeah, no one's watching network television anymore. You know what I mean? Like, or they're not there yet. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's what happened with, um, early television is just like, there's, there was no, it was all speculative. There was, we didn't know there was money to be made. People, we hadn't gotten to a critical mass of people with television yet. So that was the best time for women to run in there and stake some claim and maybe just hope. I'm not even sure they were being that like calculated. They just kind of saw an opening yeah. and it was like, well, I'm in radio and that's crowded. So maybe I try tell you know, it, it, it encouraged them to, they had better reasons to take that chance than men did who were established and had a good thing going. Um, so I dated it to about 1955 that things real like I, I, saw that essentially that's when the real the what we think of the 50s on television yeah. ha- <laughs> is happened basically in 1955 and that's just because there was a critical mass of people in America with televisions there was money to be made you know and I would say also there's a you know coordinating like conservative wave mm-hmm. that's been coming since the end of World War II that really sort of starts to crust there so all of those things together just become like that's when the men just like walk into the boardrooms of television and they're like, thanks, well, we've got it from here. Mm-hmm. And that's really when you sort of start to see that all of the women that I was sort of tracking in that book through different force, you know, mysterious forces um, are all kind of sidelined out of television one way or another, whether they're just like Betty was just fired from her, you know, she got... Um, one of the first morning talk show, national talk shows ever. And she was the next big thing. And then they just didn't know what to do with her and ended up firing her after a year. Um, imagine firing Betty White. I mean, uh, God. <laughs> that story is so frustrating to read, especially yeah. with hindsight. But yeah, I, of one course. of the things I appreciate about the way that you you cover it is it feels very present as you're reading it. Mm-hmm. And just to think about being in that position, I mean, it's throwing me into watching uh, the most recent season of Julia, mm-hmm. and this idea of what's happening as women are entering the workforce, and you see the the male cohort in risk assessment mode, realizing right. the good thing that they have, and what's challenging it, what's worth pioneering now, that's already been pioneered for them. Yeah, exactly. It also reminded like, um, lessons in chemistry reminded me a lot mm-hmm. of, yes. of this too. Um, that you know it's it that was i thought a pretty good portrayal of the similar thing where it's like they kind of it's like they don't know what to do because it's like they know somebody is good at what they're doing on screen but they also are sort of confused and annoyed by it um essentially like they just don't they don't get it when it's not made for them you know and then some of the other women were blacklisted or blacklisted Mm -hmm. by proxy um, you know, their co in in the case of Gertrude, her co-star was blacklisted, and that screwed her up so badly. That's such a sad story. Yeah. yeah, it's really bad. Would you like to maybe talk a little bit about that for people who maybe aren't familiar with Philip Loeb? Yeah. Uh, so Gertrude Berg, as I mentioned, she had this um, very successful at the beginning uh, family show called The Goldbergs, and it's exactly what it sounds like. You know, it's a, it's not the current Goldbergs, but the, it's a Jewish family in, in a tenement in the Bronx. But it's very much, you know, a pioneering version of the family show we now are very familiar with. You have to remember, they actually didn't know what that looked like. So at the time, they were making it up. But it's very much a living room 
you know, for the most part show where families work out stuff. And it's really fun to watch, especially in the early days. It's it's really the, the stuff that you can get. It's so fun. And it is fun partly because it is the family show we know, but also at times it goes a completely different direction than you think because of the fact that like it doesn't know the tropes yet. Um, and it's also a very Jewish family, you know, in the city. That's something that was very, you know, unique at the time. And her husband was played by Philip Loeb, uh, this actor who was also very much an early um, labor activist in mm-hmm. um, the industry. And I was thinking about him a lot in the last year with the strikes. Yeah. Uh, and Same. so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, he really pioneered a lot of that stuff. He really actually was in, was in the room and involved with getting a lot of the, you know, protection, the original protections. People don't realize, like, it used to just be Wild West. Like, it used to be just like... <laughs> exploit the crap out of your actors and pay them nothing. And, you know, people didn't have benefits. They didn't have all of the stuff. And he was really part of the group that was responsible for making it a li- sometimes a livable profession. And um, that turned around to bite him, as of course it does sometimes. Uh, he There was a blacklist that there was a wave of blacklist. I I wanted, I was going to say there's a blacklist that came out, which is kind of true. It's just like a very weird thing that the way this thing would work. Um, But in this case, there was this publication that came out um, that purported to list quote, possible communists. It's just like, maybe, maybe these people are, we're we're not sure. Let's ruin someone's Um, life. Maybe. Yeah, but just like, here's an, allegedly, allegedly. Right, right. And they would say that, like, when they were, when people would be like, is this, why would you, why do you think this is okay? They're like, well, we said, you know, who knows, but maybe. And unfortunately, the maybe was enough to get a lot of people fired. Mm -hmm. And it was just Risk assessment. Yep. It's just fear. It was no one ever said they were not going to watch the Goldbergs because Philip Loeb was on it. It was just like the fear of possible boycotts and things. And I I think they were always weighing this stuff, right? It's like, well, he, is he that important? Maybe we can just get rid of him, you know, that kind of thing. And so I always wonder if they would have taken out Gertrude. It's just interesting that she was not on the list, but he was. Um, yeah. Because she was more powerful. But anyway, you know, she tried to save him for a while. Like, she refused to fire him, even though her sponsors were asking her to. And so she was trying to negotiate behind the scenes to stay on the air and also keep him. And they just were not budging on it. And this kept them off the air for a while. And at a critical time, particularly because the next season, what was supposed to happen is that they were going to be paired with a new show called I Love Lucy. Hmm. And really what's funny about that is that at the time, of course, it's almost as if like, like I Love Lucy was the unproven entity yeah. there. Like they were thinking like, oh, G- Goldberg's is really going to help this I Love Lucy get off the ground. <laughs> um, but in any case, I mean, it, Lucy was an immediate hit. And think of how much we would know who Gertrude was if yeah. that were true. And you know how this is. You can't just take a show off the air for a couple seasons and expect it, especially at this time when it's so you know, who no, no one's sure what's going on and everything. And at a time when, of course, obviously at, you had to, it's appointment viewing. We don't have DVRs. It's 1949. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, we really don't, you know, you had to watch it. You had to know when it was on. And the minute it's gone, it's out of people's heads. Mm-hmm. And so 
she, I really think, you know, this show had been so popular. It was the first show that was ever turned into a movie. Um, they were really like riding high. And then all of a sudden this happened and cut the momentum and she was trying to, to make it all work. And then she finally gave in after a little bit, um, had ended up having to go to another network, got another network to, to say they'd put the show on, but they would only, it turned, it, there was a lot of machinations, but essentially the bottom line was they ended up saying, we'll only do it if Philip Loeb is fired. And she finally, her reasoning for giving in was just that she employed many yeah. people and she didn't want to keep them waiting anymore. And I really believe too, this is this woman's entire life's work. I mean, this was on radio first for almost two decades. So like she brings it to television and now all of a sudden, you know, her entire life's work is threatened and she does employ a bunch of other people. And so she finally just said, you know, she entered an agreement to essentially keep paying him as long as the show was on. But, you know, replacing him with someone else. I mean, there's sort of this sweet thing where like she she goes to replace him and like she doesn't like any of the actors, which I think is very psychological. Yeah. Like she went through like every actor in Hollywood and was like, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> and it's because they had really nice chemistry and you can't yeah, also just very sweet, screw yeah. that up and expect someone else. You know, the, he, she had two or three. What, uh, at least two other Philip, or uh, his name was not Philip. Um, <laughs> at least two other TV husbands, and not none of them worked that well. Um, and it was funny also to watch. I mean, funny, sad. Some of the episodes where they first come back, and she has the new husband. Like she writes so little dialogue for this poor man. Like she clearly does not really <laughs> want him there. There's even a joke at some point, like they actually do a meta joke at some point where he's like, well, I never get to talk anymore or something <laughs> like that. And yeah, it just never worked again. It never worked the same. The show wasn't the same. Um, people weren't as interested in it and it just lost its mojo. And th from there, like he um, he ended up dying by suicide uh, and he, mm -hmm. it was pretty um, accepted at the time and historically that it was essentially a suicide because of the blacklist yeah. like that that is how that has been recorded in history and it seems pretty clear that that's true because he couldn't get work yeah. anymore and didn't he have an yeah. ill son that he needed to take care of he did he had a mentally ill son yeah. who he was paying uh his hot he was in a mental hospital because that was how things definitely yeah. went then yeah. Yeah. um and yeah and he was just he really was starting to struggle by then he was having his own health issues and his you know he was trying to pay his son's bills and he was like on a touring production of you know he that's where he ended up is kind of like on touring productions of plays because that was the only place he could get hired and you know that's a hard life too so yeah it just it just he was sort of like at this high at, in that first two seasons of the Goldbergs in the movie and then it just disintegrated because of the blacklist yeah, I first learned about Gertrude Berg through Philip Lowe because the Actors' Equity had a uh, a talk about him on the anniversary mm. of his death. Because not that it it has any justification, the blacklist, uh, but if you look at the things that Philip Lowe was fighting for, it was running water. It was yeah. <laughs> yeah. having a, a cot, which, you know, actors joke about, oh, we got the equity cot, you know, a place to rest because they were there for so long. And so many people, I mean, John Garfield, people whose lives were ruined because of this uh, ridiculous red channels. But I, it, it 
it introduced me to Gertrude Berg, who I knew nothing about. And knowing the breadth of her career through radio and television, and something I think that many people who are listening may not understand, that she wrote every episode, and on radio there were 46 episodes a year almost, which is... Yep. Like, how, how can you fathom that many episodes? I think there's a picture of her, right, with all of the scripts sort of stacked up on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was an amazing individual. And what I find compelling in your book is how you show how difficult it was for her to make that decision and how she mm -hmm. fought against it and how she just really seemed to feel like she had no choice in the end to mm -hmm. save the show and and save people's jobs. Exactly. And she, I mean, this is something you can imagine because I was like, this is the crux of what I wanted to get at. Um, this was a huge, huge dramatic moment. It's like the moment of her life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she really, she was such a controlling person that, which, you know, is is what it, like that's where she, how she got where she was. Mm -hmm. And she was so in control, especially of her, outward, like what people knew about her and what people saw of her, that she just did not talk about this. Mm. Um, she, her grandchildren who I interviewed said like, yeah, we just, you don't talk about this. And she, the, one of the fast, most fascinating things to me is that she wrote an autobiography in which she completely skips over it. Wow. It must have which been is so like, painful. I mean, that's, it's, she mentions him. Yeah. You know, like she just it's like and Philip Loeb was my husband and he was great and blah, blah, blah. And then just goes right past it in the Ugh. timeline, the actual all of the stuff. So I worked really hard to try to get as much as I could about what had gone on because I was so convinced. Like I was like, I know she didn't just throw him under the bus. Yeah. Because um, there is this pause. Right. So it's like there's so, so it's something in between. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to find things like there's an NBC archive where there were some memos. Mm. which was the where she was when she as she was at first at CBS and then after that didn't after they you know the whole blacklisting thing worked and um she's NBC was the one that picked them up and they kind of had some some good behind the scenes stuff and um you know but it was so hard to figure out like there definitely is no record of how she felt about for instance his death none and obviously like you can surmise I'm sure she was devastated but uh, she yeah. did she's <laughs> never actually like the only evidence we have of how she felt is the fact that she wouldn't talk about it mm -hmm. um her archive is fairly devoid of this there is one folder where she has all of the clippings about the philip loeb thing and then there's nothing else so it's just mm -hmm. like very interesting to see how she even curated her life um which i think is also something these women you know these all four all four of my women and when women invent yeah. television um really meticulously curated their image mm -hmm. in different ways. And for her, this was a huge part of that. And, and I, I just take it as like, no, I'm supposed to be Molly Goldberg, this happy Jewish yeah. mother. Like, that's what people want from me. I There's no sadness. We're not, that's not what we're doing here. It also, it makes me think a lot about, you know, obviously we are currently in this day and age of knowing more about people than we probably need to and also this idea of the the holding of one's trauma of choosing whether or not you let people in on that I'm sure was mm -hmm. probably part of it as well but something you made me think about when you talk about your women and about some of the parallels that we have something for us in Murphy Brown that's very important is talking about intersectionality and the story of Hazel Scott and McCarthyism 
along mm-hmm. these lines. Um, I would love to hear you talk about the choice to in- include her story and talk about her. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, so I knew I was going to do four, you know, my idea was kind of like pick four of different kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was obviously I wanted a, per- a woman of color because it, that's really, you know, not just based on like 2020s rules, but also it was um, not just women, but people of color who really saw the opportunity, the sort mm-hmm. of gold rush opportunity early in television. There's actually like more diversity earlier too, um, which is so wild. But um, I definitely wanted to have a woman of color. And so there were several. And I mean, she's just so hard to resist in a lot of ways. She was so glamorous. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, she's so cool. Um, like, she's just she like really the is like even just pictures. You're like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm loving that you're introducing me to this person. But I'm also so sad that like she has been lost to time because she seemed so amazing. As the kids would say, she's now my Roman Empire. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's that's the thing. I the way I always I had like like analogs for a lot of these just to sort of explain them to current people, to modern people. And I always said like Gertrude is kind of like an Oprah figure because she oh, was yeah, such that's a, like, great, you know, yeah. she, she wrote and, and directed and starred and created and produced and all of that. But she also had like a line of house dresses and a cookbook and like she understood brand extension. Oh, yeah. um, whereas I always say that Hazel is like Beyonce. And, oh yes. <laughs> right. Like she's that's not because it's not only that she's glamorous and beautiful um, and a musician. Um, mm-hmm. She was a jazz musician and very political. She um, was a civil rights activist, early civil rights activist, and was married to Adam Clayton Powell, who um, was a congressman. And so they were kind of this like crazy power, like such a glamorous power. He's very handsome too. Um, they're so hot. Like just they're so like, they were like the hottest couple. So and like ev- there were like crowds outside the, you know, church when they got married in Harlem and they were on the cover of Ebony like all the time. There was this mm-hmm. great article that was just like a picture of him and it was like my life with Hazel Scott. And it was all like for this sort of like as you know, as told to first person. And weirdly, especially for a congressman, like very sort of personal and revealing in the sense of like they're building a very specific image of like she makes chocolate cake, but she also looks hot. And there was this one time when we were gonna go to a concert and let me tell you, we did not even get there. Um, you know, like one of those kinds of where you're like is this happening? Like, this is just published? Like, is I mean, pop culture just- politics, I'm in. Yeah. It was so, it's so strange, but it's so like Jay-Z and Beyonce, right? That it's like, they, I think that's actually very calculated, right? It's all in the, in service of, of course, their own images, but also their activism and showing like this strong black couple. They had a child um, at the time of her te- television show, they had a small child and, um, you know, she was super glamorous. And so she got this show because that was what happened a lot of the time is the musicians would have what they'd call a variety show. And it was mostly them performing, but then they'd occasionally have like guests in and friends and stuff like that. It's kind of fun. I wish we did more of that now. And so hers was sort of set in this, her, her set looked like kind of like a penthouse apartment in New York City very well appointed and she's at a piano and one of her tricks is that she'd sometimes play like two pianos at once yeah so she'd do that sometimes on the show she had a backing band and it was doing really well like it started in 
local in New York City one night a week, expanded to like three nights a week because it was doing so well, and then expanded nationally. And all of the reviews, like this is a weird thing, but I guess you kind of think of it now as like bloggers. The trade magazines, would the, they would actually review like most episodes of a show. They'd give you like a little recap and tell you how it was. Even something yeah. like her just playing the piano, they would just sort of tell you. And so they were they really tracked shows, which was lucky for me because there's no recordings of the show. Yeah. Um, so the only way I know what happened is their meticulous kind of descriptions of it. But it was doing really well. And every review I read, people loved it and wanted more and all of this stuff. And then, you know, she also ended up on the same list as Philip Loeb, Mm -hmm. which was the she. So her show ran for like about a year in 1950. And then this list happened. And that was it. I mean, that was kind of like, you know, um, despite the fact that it was doing really well, it's we we can never know there are alternate histories of these shows, right? Um, It's shocking to me how much it seems almost as if these networks left money on the table, at least to my modern eyes, mm-hmm. I could be totally wrong. And maybe these shows would have gotten reamed for having suspected communists on them. But they were so scared of this idea when that they killed two of their most popular shows on the sheer fear. It, like, yeah. again, as I said before, no one was actively like boycotting them. They may have gotten like one letter from somebody somewhere. Um, But people were not, this was not like a thing that was definitely going to happen. It was just the idea that it might. And maybe they felt as if, you know, they were already taking a chance on a black woman. But, you know, she was actually like the first black person, male or female, to have a primetime network show of their own. So that's huge. And but maybe that still made them a little bit nervous. And so... She was blacklisted. And then the problem with her, (laughs) which I think is a good problem, um, the reason she's so extra cool is that she was like, oh, no, this is no, this is not okay." And so she just went to Washington and gave them a piece of her mind. They did not want to see her. They tried to not see her, the committee that was in charge of this. And then she made she called a press conference and was like, they won't see (laughs) me. It's my favorite. And you remember, she's a congresswoman's yeah, or com- congressman's uh, wife. Um, so now they've got a problem. So I'm like, she can come. And she gave this incredible speech, but did not. I don't. I mean, who knows? I don't want to say it didn't help her cause, but I, I, I doubt that it helped. You know, sure. it was it was no help in keeping her show on the air. Um, but I think it was a really cool thing to do. Like, imagine that a black woman mm-hmm. went before those like Strom Thurmondy people, this big committee of white men, and explain to them what they were doing wrong. I, I mean, it's incredible. And the short version of the story, there's there's some stuff, there's a bunch of drama, but like, you know, basically in the end, she ends up leaving the country because she's just like, screw this, these people are idiots. Between the racism and the anti-communism, I can't. And so she just moved to Paris after she split up with Adam Clayton Powell, who was his own project. Um, And so that was that. And that, I think, is a huge reason why we don't know who she is now is because she didn't just get blacklisted. She also just left the country and was like, 
I have other things to do. So she had like a pretty, you know, she had some difficulties, but she also had a pretty nice life in Paris for a while. Eventually came back and performed in America um, before she died. But, you know, I, I think, again, you can't just cut people off in this, like when they're on their upward trajectory, because you can't just get it back. Yeah, It's when it's time, it's time. And if you cut them off during it, that's it. And that's why we don't know about these two huge, important women. Now, I'm curious, do you think that she was put on the blacklist because she was a woman of color or a retribution against her husband or because she was against segregation? I mean, I think all of the above, probably. I mean, it's just, you know, there's there's a an awful lot of marginalized people on that list. Mm -hmm. Like if you're Jewish, if you're black, if you're a woman that ups your chances and definitely like, so also notice like, so her, and if you think about her and Philip Loeb, right. It's like, he's Jewish, she's a black woman. Um, both are activists in different ways. So they're both like troublemakers. They both have FBI files. I did get her FBI files. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that at that time you can't overstate kind of the, the, the sort of hype around all of this stuff, you know? And it's also, I always like to remind everyone that it, it was not and still is not technically um, against the law to be a communist. It's yeah. so strange because like yeah. both of these people denied being quote communist. And it's like, how would you even define that? Um, but like also you are totally allowed to be, you know, technically yeah. speaking. So it, you know, that too, it's like, even if they were, it that shouldn't take away that's just like a belief system that's not you know that's not against the law they were not committing treason of any kind mm-hmm. so you know i do think these that that it's really it was really easy to then use this kind of list yeah and maybe they didn't even the people making it maybe they didn't even realize they were doing it per se but they're like that looks like a communist to me right it's like yeah that's isn't it suspicious that that you know yeah. Like think of now when you have conspiracy theories about like the Illuminati or whatever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how people, for instance, very much have, you know, like famously wielded against Jay-Z and Beyonce. Um, she mentions it in a song like <laughs> because it's there's a reason. And the reason is people are like, well, it's awfully suspicious that those two black people are so powerful. So something else must be going on, you know, and how can we take them down? And I think both that gets you on the list and then it also like doesn't get you the benefit of the doubt so that when advertisers are nervous and looking at this stuff, they just go like, "Uh, we were worried to begin with. Now we're really worried. Mm -hmm. This isn't worth the trouble. Oh, it's so there's such an implication of the people who are used to being in power. And both this idea of like, well, we didn't give them this much power. So how did they get it? It must be something nefarious. But also even then this idea of these folks in marginalized identities is, well, you should just be happy that we let you have this to begin with. How dare you also be mouthy and by doing so challenge our power. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. She, I mean, they were very much, you know, there's a lot of kind of people coming for Adam Clayton Powell, Powell too. Um, I don't think that they were being paranoid when they believed that they were being bugged while they were on vacation and stuff like that. Oh, um, totally. In fact, their son has tells this story about like 
them believing they were being bugged while on vacation and then opening a door and being like, there they are. Um, like there's, there's the people listening to us. Like this, if you look at history, it, we now know, like think, think of like MLK, Byron Rustin, all of those people um, who were, were, we now just accept we were just like, of course they were, you know, the FBI was gunning for them and yeah, we was know they trying were. to get everything <laughs> they could. We just know this. And ACP was right in there. And therefore, his wife, who, you know, was this enormous figure in and of herself. Now, one of the women that you write about that I was also surprised about, who I had never heard of because of the the ripple effect of how it's still influenced today, and that's Erna Phillips. Yeah. I just, it's so funny. Every time you bring up one, I'm like, oh, she's my favorite. No, she's my favorite. Right. I can tell I you, it. I it's... can't. Yes. Every, I loved your book so much. Thank you. Not just because They're... of how you lay out the story, but also because of all of these amazing women. And I, exactly, exactly. I can't, Considering it's a book that I picked up because <laughs> Betty White is in it, among just the title yeah. being inspirational. That was, that, was, that was our plan. I knew so. it would be, right? Mm -hmm. To say, oh, the most <laughs> lauded and favorite woman of the last decades or so, I can't choose between her and everyone else in this book who you've never heard mm -hmm. of, who is my favorite. I know, I know. And the Betty stuff is great, too, just because it's like, to me, we don't know a lot of that. Like, yeah. that's not what is emphasized because her career was so long. But anyway, Erna. Erna's fascinating. She invented soap operas. Like, she invented the entire genre. She was working radio, and some guy was like, we need to get female listeners because we have to sell them these household products. Make something that they'll like. And she came up with essentially the family drama, right? Like that's that's the the serialized family drama is the way I would describe what she came up with as the soap opera. And you know, so she is the one who is responsible for like really a lot of the hallmarks and weirdly that we still know about. Mm -hmm. Like we all still kind of know about the or the dramatic organ cues. <laughs> um, which she came up with actually because she was doing Guiding Light at the time. And there's at, at that time, like the central conceit of Guiding Light was actually a priest. So like the thing was more like she was thinking of organ cues there in church. Great. And then it just stuck as a hallmark of all of her works. And she had so many works and they were so influential that everybody was doing it. So it just sort of became this actual trope that we still, I don't think anyone uses it, but we're still aware of it today mm -hmm. as kind of like the cartoony version, right? And I think when they would do like the Californians yes. on SNL, they would <laughs> exactly. still Something use the stuff. Yeah. The, the other thing that they do in that that she is very much responsible for is the dramatic pause. She loved a dramatic pause. When I was looking through her archives, she actually had often written on, like when she gave notes to her director, she'd be like, more dramatic pauses, please. She loved them. <laughs> The so, pinter of television. <laughs> <laughs> Even on radio, she, she started it on radio yeah, and then like yeah. brought it to television. And, you know, I think there's a number of reasons for that. And the thing is that she was so in touch with her female audience. And this sounds sexist now, but I actually think it's pretty clever is that she was very focused on the fact that women who were watching at home would be doing housework. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. while you know, her fans from radio, like, that's fine. They're, it's radio. We've all listened to podcasts while, like, doing housework, right? Mm -hmm. But she was very nervous about bringing it to television, even though she also believed it would work there. 
And she, so she was always taking a lot of effort to like make sure, for instance, that they would explain like what was happening on the screen in the dialogue so that you didn't have to necessarily like look up if you were in the other room or whatever doing or doing your ironing. It's, or, you know, so they look kind of dumb in a lot of ways. That's if they look dumb, that's why it's because like, you're like, why are they saying, you know, so they're like, I see you have a newspaper there and it's, <laughs> and, it, and it says that so-and-so is wanted for murder. They're just um, very observant back then. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but if, but that's why, and often too, like she would have, she loved cliffhangers, um, but then would off, would take pains to kind of explain because they didn't, you know, now or in more recent years, we came upon the brilliant idea of the recap, you know, when you go like previously on, Mm -hmm. Um, they didn't do previously on. So she would kind of have to like, when she came back the next day, be like, well, as you know, Mita is wanted for murder. And maybe you you had a doctor's appointment. Maybe you went out and got some groceries and you missed an episode too. (laughs) So she just, because it's so, it was so important to this genre this isn't a sitcom, right? So because in the genre, the whole point is knowing what's going on and wanting to find out what happens next, she figured out ways to make sure that that was really clear. And this made, in addition to think this just being for women, it the all of these signals also made the men in the business think these were dumb. But she obviously had the last laugh and knew better. And it took a couple tries, but she ended up you know, with Guiding Light, I think this is brilliant too, is what she, the trick ended up being, don't create a new show. When she created a new show for TV, it didn't work. She just brought her show over to television one day, like in the middle of the, you know, same exact plot line, just brought it over to TV. And actually for a while they were doing both. So you could listen or watch depending on what your preferences were and what devices you had and you would be hearing or watching the same show like all everybody was on the same page so that was really brilliant too so it wasn't as if they did like a new pilot to explain what was happening they just were like here we are on tv now this is what's happening and that really worked and from there she was sort of built this entire empire of soaps that were incredible and she had two of the longest running yeah television shows ever including i think it's guiding light i think i'm getting this right um, I don't have my book in As front the of me. As the world turns, uh, another world. Um, yeah, but she had the actual. Oh, like, the record. She has the record for the longest running broadcast show ever, which meet which encompasses its radio run. That's why it's oh, the longest because it's because cool. it goes yeah. back on radio. Um, if you think about it, so many of those shows only ended recently. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not to mention, you know, something that she was mentored to Agnes Nixon and William J. Bell. William yep. J. Bell created Young and the Restless, which I grew up on, which mm-hmm. is still on. Mm-hmm. So the the fact that... Days of Our Lives, like, that I would mean, be If you jam. want to talk about what raised me. So yes, the fact that me a, too. A woman, <laughs> me too. Yeah, so the fact that a woman born in 1901 still has a reach to shows that are airing in 2024 is pretty spectacular. It really is. And if you also think about a thing about soaps is that they've often been quite cutting edge. They're a place where things often happen first on television mm-hmm. before primetime mm-hmm. because people don't get people aren't paying as much attention. So they've had a lot of the first like the first gay kiss and the first, you know, first interracial and all of those kinds of things. They really have always and just deal in very sort of taboo, racy topics. Um, they've dealt with a lot of um, important issues to like sexual assault and that kind of thing. 
And um, so if you think about that too, I mean, I think she would actually have a lot of mixed feelings about all of that. Um, she had a lot of mixed feelings in, even in her time about the progressiveness of her own shows, which I think is very interesting. She was a single mother to two adopted children. And which I also, that was a huge reason I picked her, to be honest. I just thought that was fascinating. I didn't even know that could happen at that time. Um, she ended up having a lot of regrets about it and was very obsessed later in life with the fact that she had not been able to give her parent, her children a father figure hmm. and actually even wrote about how she regretted making so many strong women on her shows. She felt personally responsible for rising divorce rates, um, which I say yay to you, but you know she yeah. saw it differently. Do you think that maybe part of that was uh, society putting that on her or just being older and conservative? I think it was, I mean, it, I think it was society. Like I you have to, it's like there were no support systems for this kind of thing then. No one wanted this to happen. I mean, people were always saying things, even, this is weird. I know you guys must know about this, that there's that archive of American television, all of these interviews, mm -hmm. do you know what I'm talking about? There's all, it's mm -hmm. great. It's a great resource. And so they would just get people, you know, and interview them about their entire history in television um, whenever they could get them, right? And yeah. so they're all more recent than, you know, they're yeah. like in the last 20 or 30 years, they've all been done. And some of the people who worked with her, who were interviewed probably in the 90s or 2000s, uh, just based on like what they look like and what the video quality looks like, um, you know, would say things when they, she, they were asked about her, they'd say things like, well, you know, she had two children under some very mysterious circumstances. I was like, is it mysterious or did she adopt them? And is there paperwork? <laughs> like, uh, but you you hear the implication there, right? Yeah. Like there's this very like nefarious, like no one, it's like, are you saying she was slutty? Are you saying, like, I don't know what you're trying to say, but that, pro and I don't think it's those individual people even necessarily sure. who like, made this up and it just was what they were told yeah like this was how it was spoken of in general was like well i don't know where she got those kids so uh, um yeah it's I just cannot. very it's it's very very strange i will say as a side note too that i just think is so interesting what this is a huge reason that adoption is such a huge trope in mm. soap operas she put it in a lot and right away she loved courtrooms. She she had a number of legal issues in her life. I was going to say, yeah. And yeah. she loved adoption. Um, and she right put it in know. on purpose. And um, I think, and of course, it, I mean, adoption also lends itself, right? It's family. Mm -hmm. It's mysterious. But she kind of pioneered those first big adoption stories and like who's the real oh my god i found out the real father is actually my boss at the hospital and you know like that kind of thing so and that means that the guy i'm dating is actually my brother and like all of that stuff um that so just seems just like normal to us wrestlers. now i just feel like maury owes her a thank you yes exactly exactly <laughs> oh i mean god. she she really did that and she did put that stuff in on purpose and she often want, like was trying to say something with this stuff and in time you know at times with this was trying to tell people like don't do it i don't think it's a good idea like she really said she she openly said she regretted mm -hmm. having her children um which i don't think she meant yeah like no, against she her meant, children yeah, she felt that she didn't give them a good life i guess 
but she it's so crazy because she had she was wealthy and successful but she just felt she always felt like she was lacking she was never felt like she was doing enough because the kids were going to school and like you know the their the other mothers are baking brownies for you know it's classic stuff for their kids mm-hmm. to bring for their birthday and she just couldn't she had to have the nanny do it and she just it really bugged her and especially that lack of a father figure bugged her so much. Hmm. Yeah, that was a sad part for me when I read in the book. Yeah. Yeah. You know. They had hard lives. <laughs> yeah. They really I was say, did. Especially the the representation of father figures is something we talk about a lot in a little show called Murphy Brown. Mm-hmm. Especially when we talk about being a kid and not quite knowing that it's a story being crafted for you or not. I, as right. a young person, was very confused by the Dan Quayle of it all when I was younger, uh, as was Dan himself. I mean, um, fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I mean, we're obviously very curious about your experience with Murphy Brown, with the characters, the representation of a quote unquote older career woman. Yes, that's a really good point. Um, you know, that's been a, a real axe I've been grinding lately is because I have now reached middle age. Mm-hmm that the representation of middle-aged women on television is just abhorrent. Mm-hmm. And we did better in the past. And we were, I think Maude came up recently too because of the death of Norman Lear. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, we were doing it better before, to be honest. We had a number of shows like this. Murphy Brown is certainly one of them as well. And I did, I mean, I do, because I was also a journalist, like I just remember loving this show for this reason of like, she's just so, so cool. I mean... <laughs> It's just so cool. It's the best. There was just no no getting around that, you know? And we didn't, we had kind of had like this lack of single women for a while. You know, right before that, there was, we had kind of gone back in the 80s to the so many traditional family things. And then even if they weren't traditional families, it was so male. It was like everything was silver spoons or different, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of like yeah. weirdly single dad. <laughs> mysteriously single dads um (laughs) right and and so it it was such a big deal i think at the time to kind of get this woman and also just i mean she's so strong and i think of like imagine i like to imagine her and like young mary interacting young you know mary richards on the mary tyler moore show like i think mary would have been so into her but also kind of very scary oh yes now i'm really now i really now i have a fantasy that i didn't know i had before i really (laughs) wish we could see that because like that's just imagining like mary being able to have an older female mentor in her business Imagine if like a female equivalent of Lou Grant could have walked in that newsroom. Oh man, oh, that would have been great. <sighs> I do want that fan fiction now, <laughs> right? Because Mary kind of gets there, right? Like she definitely gets closer by the end. Um, she is wearing power suits and like asserting herself a lot more by the end, and she has a cool apartment by the end. She's kind of a boss lady, but I don't think she ever quite got to the level, the assertiveness level. Of- well, and I'm. I'm curious Murphy. about if she could have given when the show was airing. You know, what was what was pushing the boundaries of the boss babe then Completely. versus the 80s? Mm-hmm. Completely. I don't think you could. I mean, look at what happened to Murphy. 
Like she ran into the vice president, like the vice president was mad at her, (laughs) which I'm going to say is in a kind of, I think a little bit spiritually similar to what we were saying about, say, the blacklisting of Hazel. Um, You know, why did the vice president go after this specific woman? Um, I don't think it was really about the pregnancy. I think it was they were, I, I don't want to say waiting. I don't think Dan Quayle, I mean, who knows, but I don't well, think Dan Quayle was like every, every week watching Murphy Brown and being like, how am I going to get her? They did make a lot um, of Dan Quayle jokes. The first season, <laughs> each episode has a Dan Quayle joke. And this was something- <laughs> They really that, didn't yeah, like Yeah, we did not realize until we started <laughs> so maybe. The, the podcast and really sort of delving okay. into it. And so, because we were so young when it happened, but- Yeah, there, I didn't realize that either. There is an, uh, an idea that, he kind of was angry at the show, let alone him mentioning mm-hmm. this fictional woman in, you know, a, a, a speech about the riots. I mean, it's just, it's it's all ridiculous. It is, it is so, I mean, this this had to be one of the most overtly political shows on at that time. Yeah. Like now it, it doesn't feel weird to us, but then oh, it was yeah. still a pretty big deal. Like now we expect every one of our shows to have you know, to be either blue or red, essentially. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, you know, at, it's like, I kind of wanted to just be like, you know, kids, it didn't used to, like, this really, yeah. this was like a second coming of Norman Lear. This was, you know, really incendiary, clearly political, very obvious about what, how it felt about things. And, you know, things like women having, oh my God, children out of wedlock. Crazy. Yeah, Not I knowing know. who the father was, as if- That's right that defines morality that too right right and then and then of course you have rachel on friends does the exact same thing and there's not a peep out of anybody it's a really good point it is really that's that's so true that things had changed that much in that time that that i never it didn't occur to me till you just said it that that could even be something that people could get upset about so i'm glad that we had calmed down at least a little bit by then you know we got there and now <laughs> question did we stay there that's another conversation right but here we are here we are so a book that you have coming that seems yes. to be uh, quite well timed so fetch it is weirdly well timed i have to tell like the secret is we didn't know it was quite yeah this well timed. oh you didn't wow <laughs> what serendipity it's a little weird we actually moved our date first before um. they I, it was very weird. Anyway, neither here nor there. It's happening all concurrently. And yes, so my next book is about Mean Girls, the movie. Thank you so much for joining us for part one. We hope that you will join us for part two, where we will continue our discussion on Mean Girls, the movie and the musical. Yes, we had so much fun talking to Jennifer. We clearly could not keep it to one one short episode. So we hope that you continue with us, continue riding the joy of television and pop culture and women. Yes. And you can follow us on social media at Murphy Brown Pod. We have our website, murphybrownpod.com. You can drop us a line. Let us know what you think of this episode, other episodes, ideas for topics at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.